Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Talking about chapter 14 of book 2. Um, let me have a quick look here to what our comments were. Swim says the mama fishy had this to say. Oh, wait, sorry, my bad. Tech Rific had this to say. An introduction by G.K. Chesterton, an able journalist. It is true, but that is hardly a reason for asking him to introduce a number of young Catholic writers to Protestant readers unless he has gone over to Rome. must have been before the publication of Orthodoxy and the arrival of Chesterton's star as an apologist. Scandinavia seems to be entirely free from Catholic literature, almost a true statement at the time, although some exceptions do exist in the form of writings of Queen Christina, who abdicated and became a nun in Rome. Some say that she was in fact a libertine at heart, but we don't really know. Okay, there you go. Is this, um, you know, an interesting thing to talk about, that there was no... Catholic writers? It just seems like just something rather trivial and silly to me. But maybe there's some meat on that bone, you know? Who knows? Not me. Chapter 15. When I rushed up to tell him of my discovery, he was in breeches and riding boots, presenting in my drawing room an incongruous spectacle of sport on a background of impressionist pictures. You don't mean to tell me that you brought me all the way from Mayo to argue with you about Catholicism and Protestantism, leaving important work. What work? Clearing the stone park. A darker cloud than that I had anticipated appeared in his long, narrow face as he seemed very angry. I thought it would better to listen to his plan for allowing the villagers to cut wood in the stone park. But... The temptation to hear him argue that literature and dogma were compatible compelled me to break in. Do let me tell you, it won't take more than ten minutes for me to state my case, and this is a matter that interests me much more than the stone park. The question must be threshed out. He protested much, beseeching me to believe that he had neither the learning nor the ability to argue with me. Father Finlay. That's what Gill said, but the matter is one that can be decided by anybody of ordinary education. Even education isn't necessary, for it must be clear that anybody who will face the question without prejudice that the mind petrifies if a circle be drawn around it, and it can hardly be denied that dogma draws a circle round the mind. The colonel was very much wroth in his words, whether I lived among Protestants who were inclined to use me as a stalking horse. I came to Ireland, as you know, to help literature, and if I see that dogma and literature are incompatible, I must say so. At that moment, the parlour maid opened the door and announced dinner. You'll be late for dinner, Maurice. If I am, you are to blame. And he rushed upstairs, and as we sat down to dinner, he begged me, in French, to drop the subject, Teresa being a Catholic. I suppose you were afraid she might hear something to cause her to lose her faith, I said, as she went out with the soup tureen. I think we should respect her principles. The word inflamed me, superstitions that were rammed into her. She returned with the roast chicken, and the question had to be dropped until she returned to the kitchen to fetch an apple dumpling, and we did not really settle down to literature or dogma until coffee was brought in and my cigar was alight. It's a great pity that you always set yourself in opposition to all received ideas, 
I was full of hope when you wrote, saying you were coming to Ireland. I suppose there's no use asking you not to publish. You will always go your own way. But if I limit myself to an essay entitled Literature or Dogma, you don't object to that. No, I don't say I object to it, but I'd rather not have the question raised just now. I see you don't wish to discuss it. No, I don't mind discussing it. But I must understand you. Two propositions are involved in your statement, which is the one you wish to put forward. Do you mean that all books, which in your opinion may be classed as literature, contain things that are contrary to Catholic dogma, or do you mean that no man professing the Catholic faith has written a book which, in your opinion, may be classed as literature since the Reformation? I put forward both propositions, but my main contention is that the Catholic may not speculate, and that great literature has come out of speculation on the value of life. Shakespeare? There is nothing in Shakespeare contrary to Catholic dogma. You are very prompt. Moreover, I deny that England had at that time gone entirely over to Protestantism. Italian culture had found its way into England. England had discovered her voice, I might say, her language. A Renaissance has nothing in common with Puritanism, and there is reason for thinking that this. The Brownists and the Colonel, who is a well-read man, gave me an interesting account of these earliest Puritans. The larger part of the English people may have been Protestant, he continued in, 19, in 1590, but England hadn't entirely gone over to Protestantism. Besides, England's faith has nothing to do with Shakespeare, nor does anybody know who wrote the plays. My dear friend, you won't allow me to develop my argument. It matters nothing to me whether you prefer the Lord or the Mummer. The plays were written, I suppose, by an Englishman. That, at least, will not be denied. And my contention is, no, there is no reason why I should contend, for it is sufficiently obvious that only an agnostic mind could have woven the fabric of the stories and set the characters one against the other. A sectarian soul would not have been satisfied to exhibit merely the passions. Will you charge me again with interrupting your argument if I say that I know nothing in Shakespeare that a Catholic might not have written? Well, I think if I were to take down a volume and read it, I could find a hundred verses... I see your answer trembling on your lips, that you don't require a hundred, but two or three. Very well. A Catholic couldn't have written, there is nothing serious in mortality, for he believes the very contrary. Nor could a Catholic have written a tale by, told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What reason have you to suppose that Shakespeare was speaking in his own person? It seems to me that by assuming he was doing so, you impugn his art as a dramatist, which is to give appropriate speeches. To each of his characters, the writer must never transpire in a drama. I'm afraid your religious zeal spurs you into dangerous statements, and you are in an entanglement from which you will find it difficult to extricate yourself. Shakespeare weaves a plot and sets his will against will. Desire against desire, but his plays are suffused by his spirit, and it is always the same spirit breathing, whether he be writing about carls, or kings, or virgins, or lights of love. The passage quoted from Macbeth is an excellent example of the all-pervading personality of the poet who knew when to forget the temporal character of Macbeth and to put into the mouth of the cattle-spoiler phrases that seem to us more suited to Hamlet. The poet-philosopher at once gracious and cynical, wise with the wisdom of the ages, and yet akin to the daily necessity of men's foibles and fashions, is as, as present in the play of Macbeth as in King Lear, and the same fine agnostic mind we trace throughout the comedies and the poems and the sonnets 
smiling at all systems of thought, knowing well that there is none that outlasts a generation. I cannot see why a Catholic might not have written the phrases you quote. One can only judge these things by one's own conscience, and if I had thought of these verses, you would have written them. I've always expected you of being an agnostic Catholic. The difference between the agnostic and the Catholic mind seems to me to be this. We all doubt. To doubt is human. Only in the ultimate analysis the Catholic accepts and the agnostic rejects. We know that the saints suffered from doubt, but the agnostic doesn't doubt. Though he is often without hope of a survival of his personality, a good case might be made out metaphysically if it weren't that most of you, us, are without any earthly personality. Why then a heavenly one? You were once a great admirer of Fitzgerald Omar Khayyam, and I doubt if you will dare to say to my face that a Catholic could have written the Rubiat. The colonel was at first inclined to agree with me that there was a great deal of Catholic could not have written in Fitzgerald's poems, but he soon recovered himself and began to argue that all that Fitzgerald had done was to contrast ideas, maintaining that the argument was conducted very fairly, and that if the poem were examined, it would be difficult to adduce proof from it of the author's agnosticism. agnosticism. And we know Fitzgerald was an agnostic. You're shifting round. You started by saying that the poems of Shakespeare and Fitzgerald revealed the agnosticism of the writers. You now fall upon contemporary evidence. I don't think I've shifted my ground at all. If we knew nothing about Fitzgerald's beliefs, there is abundant proof in his writings that he was an agnostic. You'll have to admit that his opinions on the nothingness of life and the futility of all human effort, whether it strives after pleasure or pain, would read as oddly if introduced into the writings of Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. as sympathetic remarks about the Immaculate Conception would read in the world of Mr. Swinburne or Professor Huxley. The nothingness of our lives and the length of the sleep out of which one we come, and the still greater length of the sleep which will very soon fall upon us, is the spring whence all great poetry flows, and this spring is perforce closed to Catholic writers forever. Do you know the beautiful stanza in Mosch's Lament for Bouillon? Ah, me, when the mellows wither in the garden and the green parsley and the curled tendrils of the Annecy on a ladder. Later day have they live again and spring in another year, but we men, we the great and mighty, or wise, when once we have died in the hollow earth, we sleep, gone down into silence, a right, long and endless and unawakening sleep. Could these lines have been written by a Catholic? The colonel could not see why not. Because, but my dear friend, I won't waste time explaining the obvious. This you'll admit. No such verses occur in Catholic poems. As poignant expressions regarding the nothingness of life as any in Moses, Shakespeare or Fitzgerald are to be found in the Psalms, and Ecclesiastes, man waketh in a vain shadow and troubleth himself in vain. The Bible wasn't written by Catholics. The colonel had to admit that it wasn't, and after watching and rejoicing in his discomfiture, for a while I went on to speak of Shakespeare's contemporaries, declaring them to be robust livers, whose philosophy was to live out their day in love of wine and women, as frequenters of the mermaid tavern and the wenches haters of the Puritan. 
You'll not call, claim Marlowe, I suppose. You'll admit that there was very little Catholic about him except a very Catholic taste for life. You mentioned just now the Brownists. They were overcome, you tell me, for the time being, but Puritanism is an enemy if it is be really one that I can meet in a friendly spirit. Lander says that Virgil excuse me, <clears throat> and St. Thomas Aquinas could never cordially shake hands, but I dare say I could shake hands with Knox, the Puritan close to the theatres, close the theatres and act which I won't pretend to sympathise with, but England's drama, dramatic genius had spent itself and for his intolerance of amusement, Puritanism made handsome amends by giving us Milton and a literature of its own. Of course, everything can be argued, and some will argue that Milton's poem was written in spite of Puritan influence, but think this I do think, that if ever a religious movement may be said to have been brought, a literature along with it, Puritanism is that one. As much as any man that ever lived, Milton's whole life was spent in emancipating himself from dogma, in his old age, he was a Unitarian. You've forgotten the Pilgrim's Progress, written out of the heavy heart of the language and out of the mind of the nation. Thank you for reminding me of it. A manly fellow was Bunyan, without clerical unction, and the courage in his heart that nothing could cast down the glory and symbol of Puritanism forever and ever. Puritanism is more inspiring than Protestantism. It is a more original attitude of mind. The agnostic mind is the original mind, the mind which we bring into the world. Milton was Unitarian, Bunyan a Puritan. Where where does your Protestantism come in? Who is the great Protestant poet? I don't limit Protestantism to the established church. Protestantism is a stage in human development. But if you want a poet who would shed the last drop of his blood for the established church, there is one, Wordsworth, and he is still considered to be a pretty good poet. Coleridge was nearly a divine you make a point with Wordsworth, I admit it. He seems, however, to have overstepped the line in his intimations of immortality. But you miss my point somewhat. It is that there is hardly any line of Protestantism to overstep. I set Newman against. Against whom? Not against Wordsworth, surely. And if you do think of the others, shall I enumerate? It wouldn't be worthwhile. It is evident that all that is best in England has gone to agnosticism and into Protestantism, confronted by Wordsworth and Coolridge, you can't deny that Protestantism a large share in the shaping of modern poetry, but there isn't a Catholic writer, only a few converts, Newman. But, my dear Colonel, we cannot for one moment compare Newman's mind to Wordsworth's or Coolridge's. To do so I may contend is ridiculous, without laying myself open to a charge of being much addicted to either writer. Wordsworth moralised nature away, and it is impossible for me at least to forgive him this, a primrose by a river's brim, a yellow primrose was to him, and it was nothing more. That nothing more is a moral sin, stain, that no time shall wash away. One would have thought that flowers, especially wild flowers, might be freed from all moral obligations. I am an objectivist, reared among the Parnassians, an exile from the Nouvelle Athenus, and neither poet has ever unduly attracted me. Three or four beautiful poems, more or less, in the world are not as important as a new mind, a new way of feeling and seeing mere writing. A theory invented on the spot so as to rid yourself of Newman. There you are mistaken. Allow me to follow the train of my thoughts and you will understand me better. And don't lose your head and run away frightened if I dare to say that Newman could not write at all, but you have dislocated my ideas a little. 
allow me to continue in my own way for what I'm saying to you today will be written tomorrow or after and talking my mind to you is a great help. I'm using you as an audience. Now, we were speaking about Coolridge and I was saying that the mere fact that a man has written three or four beautiful poems is not enough. My primary interest is in a writer being in the mind that he brings into the world. By a mind, I mean a new way of feeling and seeing. I think I've said that before, but no harm is done by repeating it. If you'll allow me to interrupt you once more, I will suggest that Newman brought a new way of feeling and seeing into the world a new soul. I suppose he did. A sort of ragged weed which withered until it was ninety. It is a mistake to speak of him as a convert to Catholicism. He was a born Catholic if ever a man was born one. Were it not for him, the term a born Catholic would be a solecism. For at first sight, it doesn't seem very easy to understand how a man can be born Catholic. A man is born blind or deaf or dumb or hunchback or an idiot, but it's difficult to see how he can be born Catholic. Yet it is so. Newman proves that a born Catholic would seem to mean one predisposed to rely upon the help of priests, sacraments, texts, amulets, medals, indulgences, and Newman, you will not deny, brought into the world an inordinate appetite for text decrees, councils, and the like. Even when he was a Protestant, he was always talking about his bishop. He was disposed from the beginning to seek authority for his every thought, obedience in spiritual matters, and is a watchword of the Catholic, and surely Newman was always replete with it. He was a born Catholic. He justified the phrase, My dear Colonel, I'm aware that I'm delivering a little sermon, but to speak to you like this is a great help to me. He seems to have been the least spiritual of men, bereft of all sense of divinity. He seems to have lived his life in ignorance that religion existed before Christianity, that Buddhism preceded it, and that in China, but we need not wander so far afield. Newman was a sectarian, if ever there was one, astride on a rail between Protestantism and Catholicism, timidly letting down one leg, drawing it back, and then letting down the other leg. In the 60s, men were frightened lest their ancestors might turn out to be monkeys, and a great many men after, ran after Newman, clapping their hands in praise of his broken English. Broken English, interrupted the colonel. Yes, broken mutterings about an edict in the 4th century, and that the world has been going astray ever since. He seems to have really believed that the destin- destiny of nations depended on the chatter of the fathers, and he and he totters after them, like an old man in a dark corner with a tallow dip in his hand, a simple-minded fellow who meant well, I think. One can see his pale soul through his eyes, and his pale style is on his face. The best that can be said about it is that it is homely. You never saw the private secretary, did you? The colonel shook his head. Mr. Spaulding came on the stage saying, I obey my bishop, and I at once thought of Newman, and though I had no shed of evidence to support my case, I shall always maintain that an amusing comedy was suggested by the Apologia. It seems to have risen out of it, and I can imagine the writer walking up and down the study, his face radiant, seeing Mr. Spaulding as a human torch, a human objectification of an interest in text, decrees, and in bishops. I had never thought of it before, but Newman confesses to Mr. Spaulding we sexuality in the Apologia, and have never and have been reading the Apologia this morning, and for the first time, here it is. I am obliged to mention, though I do it with great reluctance, another deep imagination, which at the time, and the autumn of 1816, took possession of me. There can be no mistake about the fact, viz, that it would be the will of God that I should lead a single life. This anticipation, which has held its ground almost continuously ever since, with the break of a month now and a month then, up to 1829, and after that date, without any break at all, was more or less connected in my mind with the notion that my calling in life 
would require such a sacrifice as celibacy involved. He is himself in this paragraph and nothing but himself, even on a subject in which the, his whole life concerned, he can only write dryly. And we wrangled for some time over the anticipation which had held the ground almost continuously. I admit that it isn't very good, but how do you explain that he has always been considered a master of English? All in good time, my dear Colonel, we now are now concerned with Newman's mind. It is the mind that produces the style. Listen to this. The Catholic Church holds it better for the sun and moon to drop from heaven, for the earth to fall, and for all the many millions on it to die of starvation in extremest agony, as far as temporal affliction goes. Then that one soul, I will not say, should be lost, but should commit one single venial sin, should tell one willful one truth, or should steal one poor farthing without excuse. This passage, I believe, was read with considerable piety and interest by the age which produced it, and I wonder why it has fallen out of favour, for the sentimentalise is to succeed. And it was very kind of Newman to sentimentalise over the miseries which our lightest sins cause our Creator. An unfortunate case is indeed, since the Catholic Church holds our venial sins, I committed every moment of the day and night. The Creator torments us after we are dead by putting us into hell, but will while we are on earth, we give him hell, and our difficulties don't end with the statement that we make the Creator's life a hell for him, for we are told that it would be better that all humanity should perish in extremist agony than that, etc. If that be so, why doesn't the Creator bring humanity to an end? The only possible answer to this question is that the Creator and the Catholic Church are not agreed upon by at any point, and it would be pretentious on my part to offer arbitration. They must settle their differences as best they can. I'm afraid, Colonel, you look at me a little contemptuously as if you thought my criticism frivolous. Logically, of course, the Colonel answered, logically, of course, Newman is right. We wasted at least ten minutes discussing how something that seemed utterly absurd could be said to be so logical, and to bring the discussion to an end, I reminded the Colonel that Carlyle had said that Newman's mind was not much greater than that of a half-grown rabbit. Perhaps Carlyle libeled the rabbit. He should have said the brain of a half-grown insect, a black beetle. But, said the Colonel, do you believe the black beetle to be less intelligent than the rabbit, in my experience? I'm inclined to agree with you about the one we're wandering from the point. I want to draw your attention to some passages and to ask you if they're as badly written as they seem to be. When you say that Newman wrote very badly, do you mean that he wrote in such a way that the command itself to your taste, or that he wrote incorrectly? His sentences are frequently incorrect, but I don't lay stress on their occasional incorrectness. An ungrammatical sentence is by no means incompatible with beauty or style. All the great writers have written ungrammatically, I suppose idiom means ungrammatical phrases made acceptable by usage dialect is generally ungrammatical, but Newman's slips do not help his style in the least. You're watching me, my dear Colonel, with a smile in your eyes, wondering into what further exaggeration my detestation of Catholicism will carry me. You have abused Newman enough. Let us go get the facts. You say that he writes incorrectly. The passage in which he deplores the suffering that man causes God convinced me that his mind was but a weed, and though there is no necessity for my doing so, I said, let us see how he expresses himself. You admit that a man of weak intellect cannot write in a fine style. Let us get to the grammatical blunders which you say you have discovered in Newman. I turned to the first page and read. He emphatically opened my mind and taught me to think and to use my reason. Don't you think, Colonel, that emphatically open to my mind is a queer sentence for a master of English style to write, and that we should search in Carlisle and Orlando a long while before we come upon such draggle-tailed English as we read on page 7? He emphatically opened my mind and taught me to think and and to use my reason. 
After being first noticed by him in 1822, I became very intimate with him in 1825 when I was vice-principal at Alban Hall. I gave up that office in 1826 when I became tutor of my college and his hold upon me gradually relaxed. He had done his work towards me, or nearly so, when he thought me to see with my own eyes and to walk with my own feet. Not that I had not a good deal to learn from others still, but I influenced them as well as they me and cooperated rather than merely concurred with them as to Dr. Watley. His mind was too different from mine for us to remain long on one line. I know folks that is in the vegetable line, and I think I know one chap who should be tucked up for the murder of the King's English if he weren't dead already. I recollect how dissatisfied he was with an article of mine in the London Review while Blanco White good-humouredly only called platonic. When I was diverging from him in opinion, which he did not like, I thought of dedicating my first book to him in words to the effect that he had not only taught me to think, but to think for myself. He left Oxford in 1831. After that, as far as I can recollect, I never saw him but twice when he visited the university, once in the street in 1834, once in a room in 1839-8. From the time that he left, I've always felt a real affection for what I must call his memory, for at last, at least... From the year 1834, he made himself dead to me. He had practically indeed given me up from the time that he became Archbishop in 1831 and in 1834 the correspondence took place between us. A prize fire takes place, a correspondence begins, which, though conducted especially on his side in friendly spirit, was the expression of differences of opinion which acted as a final close to our intercourse. My reason told me that it was impossible we could have got on together longer had he stayed in Oxford, yet I loved him too much to bid him farewell without pain. After a few years had passed, I began to believe that his influence on me in a higher respect than intellectual advance. He means than that of intellectual advance. Uh, I will not say through his fault had not been satisfactory. I believe that he has inserted sharp things in his later works about me. They have not come in my way, and I have not thought it necessary to seek out what would pain me so much in that reading. The next page consists of mainly of quotations from Dr. Wadley, who apparently is capable of expressing himself, and we pick up Newman's father on. The case was this, though at that time... I had not read Bishop Bull's Defensio nor the Fathers. I just was then very strong that the anti-Nicene view of the Trinitarian doctrine which some writers, both Catholic and non-Catholic, have accused of wearing a sort of Aryan exterior. I don't really see, said the Colonel, that that sentence is, don't trouble to defend it, there is worse to come. But how is it that the writer of such sentences is still spoken about as a master of style? Am I the only man living who has read the Apologia? It is impossible to read that, I admit. It would be against my nature to act otherwise than I do, but besides it would be to forget the lessons which I gained in the experience of my own history in the past. One doesn't gain lessons. How shall we amend it? The experience I gained from the lessons of my own history. The bishop has but said that a certain tract is objectionable, no reason being stated. Without giving his reasons, the bishop has only said that a certain tract is objectionable, is how the editor of the halfpenny paper would probably revise Newman's sentence, and... Who will say that the revised text is not better than the original? Uh, as I declared on occasion in Tract at 90, I claimed in behalf of who would in the Anglican Church 
Can he mean those who so desired an Anglican church? But it would take too long to put this passage right, for it is impossible to know exactly what the greatest master of lucid English meant. The right of holding with Bromel a complication with the saints and the mass, all but transubstantiation with Andrews or with Hooker, that transurbanization, transubstantiation, sorry, itself is not a point for churches to part communion upon. The kind of English that one would wrap a boy of twelve over the knuckles for writing, or with Hammond that a general council truly such never did, never shall err in a matter of faith. A thousand years of Catholicism is needed to write like this, so perhaps the present Duke of Norfolk is the author of the Apologia. Or with Bull that man had in paradise and lost in the fall, a supernatural habit of grace. The style is the man, a simpleton cleric, especially anxious about his soul. No, I am mistaken about a text. Or with Thorndike that penance is a proposition for the post-baptismal of sin. Or with Pearson that the all-powerful name of Jesus is no otherwise given than in the Catholic Church. What does he mean by given? In what sense? Does he mean that the name of Jesus is rendered in all churches in the same way? But then, what exactly does he mean by given? The colonel who writes a letter to a newspaper as well as anybody I know took the book from my hand, saying, It is barely credible. I can write as well as that myself. A great deal better, I answered, and we continued to look through the apology, astonished at the feebleness of the mind behind the words and the words themselves. Like dead leaves, I said. What surprises me is the lack of distinction, the colonel murmured. If the writing were a little more... Worse, it would be better, I answered. Am I going too far, my dear Colonel, if I say that the Apologia reads more like a mock of Catholic literature than anything else, and that it would pass for such if we didn't know that it was written in great seriousness of spirit, and read with some same seriousness the Protestant divine ever wrote so badly, perhaps Newman? Haven't you anything about anything but the Apologia? No, and there is no reason why I should. How would you like to be judged by one book? I have shown my friends the passages I have been quoting, and they think he wrote better when he was a Protestant. I see your article on Newman came from end to end. That Newman was a great writer until he became Catholic is a pretty paradox which will suit your style. You'll be able to discover passages in his Protestant sermons better written, no doubt, than the passages you select from Apologia. The colonel lit his candle, and I could hear him laughing good humouredly as he went upstairs to bed. It's dangerous to name a quality, I said to him next morning at breakfast, whereby we may recognise a great writer, for as soon as we have done so, somebody names somebody whom we must confess deficient in the quality mentioned. The perils of definition are numerous, but most people will agree with me that all great writers have possessed the extraordinary gift of creating images, and if that be so Newman cannot be called a writer. We search vainly in the barren, sandy tract of the Apologia for one, finding only dead phrases very often used so incorrectly that it is difficult to tell what he is driving at. Driving at is just the kind of worn-out phrase he would use without a scruple. You are judging Newman by the Apologia. I admit I haven't read any other book, but dear Edward once invited me to look into. I have forgotten the title... But I remember the sentence that caught my eye. Heresy stalks the land, and you will agree with me that it is hardly exaggeration to say that the average reporter would be ashamed to write the words, unless he were in a very great hurry. Newman wrote the Apologia in a great hurry. However great your hurry, you couldn't, nor could any of the friends who came here on Saturday night write as badly, and unless he, we told, hold that he be always thin and colourless is a, a style. You have a good cause against him, but I am afraid you'll spoil it by overstatement. My concern is neither to overstate nor to understate, but to follow my own mind, faithfully tracing every turn. An idea has been running in my head that books 
lose and gain quality, books lose and gain quality in the course of time. And I have worried over it a good deal for what seemed to be a paradox I felt to be a truth. Our fathers were not so foolish as they appear to us to be. In their admiration of Lara, the Corsair, the bride of Abdidas de Gio, they braided into the clay and vivified it. And when weary of romance, they wandered into theology and were lured by a mirage, seeing groves of palm trees, flowers, and a bubbling rill, where in truth there was nothing but rocks and sand and a puddle of wild Byron and Newman turn to dust. Shakespeare is becoming eternal. There are degrees then in immortality. Of course, the longer the immortality, the more perfect it becomes. Time putting a patina upon the bronze and the marble and the wood, and I think upon texts you never will persuade me that the text that we read is the text read in 1623. The colonel did not answer... Wait. The colonel raised his sad eyes from the apology into which they had been plunged. I admit that we never seemed to get any further metaphysics than Berkeley. I said, he said a few minutes later, the Newman has written a proof as for the sufficiently revised edition. Have you read it? No, but I shall be glad to listen to you after breakfast. As soon as he finished his eggs and bacon, the colonel fixed his glass a little higher in his nose, and it was long before we began to feel the tasks were hard and one after another, and when the last sentence was pronounced, the colonel, despite his reluctance to decry anything Gothic, was forced to admit a lack of focus in composition. He wanders from one subject to another, never finishing. Excellent criticism. What do you say in a disagreement with Stevenson, who told an interviewer that if a man can group his ideas, he is a good writer, though the words in which he expresses himself be tasteless, and as you say, Newman, before he is finished with his third section, returns to the first from the fifth year turns to the fourth and the sixth section, we find some points that should have been included in the second. The colonel did not answer, and feeling that I owed something to my guest, I said, the last time you were here you mentioned that you hoped to be able to get one of the gateways from the new book. The colonel brightened up at once and told me that he was only just in time for the stones were about to be utilised by the peasants for the building of pigsties and cottages, but he had followed them in his gig through the country and had brought them all to Moor Hall and was now only waiting for me to decide whether I would like the gateway built in a half circle or in a straight line. The sawmill he hoped to get into working order very soon. It will be of great use for cutting up the timber that we shall get out of the stone park. Isn't it in working order? With emphasis and interest, the colonel began to relate the accident the sawmill had met with on the way from Ballon's Robe. As it was entering the farmyard, one of the horses had shied, bringing the boiler right up against a stone pillar, starting some of the rivets. A dark cloud came into his face, and I learned from him that he had very foolishly given heed to the smith at Ballon Robe, a braggart who had sworn he could rivet a boiler with any man in Ireland. But when it came to the point, he could do nothing. The Castlebar smith, a very clever man, had not succeeded any better, but there was a smith in Kong, a real Trishulian. The story I admit is assuming all the propositions of an epic. The colonel replied joyously, and I allowed him to tell me the whole of it, listening to with half my brain while with the other half I conspired to hide in the colonel's skull and the narrowness across the temples. A refined head, I said to myself, and it seemed to me that I'd seen at some time or other the same pinch skull in certain portions of the Cluxus or Berlini and the school of Berlini, but in those colonel's vague and conclusive eyes I added, Italy has always retained a great deal of her ancient paganism, but Catholicism absorbs Spain and Ireland. It is into Spanish painting that we must look for the colonel, and we find most of him in Velazquez and somewhat icy painter who somehowever relished and stated with great skill the colonel's high-pitched nose the drawing of the small nostrils and the hard grizzled moustache he painted a very true catholic in all his portraits of philip never failing to catch the faded empty that is so essentially a part of the catholic faith our 
Ideas mould a likeness quickly and nature supplies certain proportions and the colonel, when he fattens out a little, which he sometimes does, and when his mind is away reminds me of the dead king, of course there is dismissed and kingship creates formalities and the Spanish court must have robbed Philip of all sense of humour and buried it very deeply in the breast and never caught it and never pleased on one occasion in the splendid fight of the bullhood against the pickle and it did not seem the worst business being worthy of the honour of the killing him. The bullet earned the death of the highest hand into the land and the armed himself with the arabesque and the cover. Walked across the arena and shot the bull with his own kindly hand and he washed, walked away the bull with a kingly stride and a sloven stride and a kingly act would be incompatible. He must have walked as if to music but the colonel has little or no ear for music and his walk is for his reason or another very opposite of Phillips. He slouches from side to side a curious gait a reader will say for a soldier of 30 years but very like himself and therefore the only other to see, to see him preparing for it, hustling himself into the old yellow overcoat in the passage, he never carries a stick or umbrella. He slouches along his dance, dangling ugly out of the ends of his cuffs to see to what business he is going. I often wonder as I stand at the window watching him, remembering all the while how he had lain back in his armchair after breakfast reading a book and subconsciously suggesting to him many different errands. And at the last, detaching from his book or his manuscript to the colonel, has always meditated in his literary career and himself. As soon as the free people in the army, there were people today, tomorrow, yesterday, and the colonel is much more of a yesterday than of a today. If he does not defend the Inquisition directly, he does so indirectly. All religions are persecuted for his nature, and the men persecuted and unable to attend uh, Protestantism, rationalism together to redeem the world from the disgrace of the Middle Ages. The ideas clank a lot of chains about him, but do not ordinary ear. The colonel is reserved by nature only when they find ear can hear the clanks. Balzac would never have thought of the colonel for a modern story, would it would have replaced him. I have sufficient confidence in Balzac genius to believe that he would have placed him in a Spanish setting, for the colonel's mind is so archaic that his clothes distress even me. I am not good at clothes, but I am sure it is because his nature of garment, the doublet, is forbidden him that he dresses himself in the dim grey hues and the pepper and salt. He has never been seen in the cheeks of fa- checks of fancy waistcoats or in a bright coloured tie. He goes, however, willingly into breeches. At Moor Hall, he is never out of breeches. Breeches remind him of his country. Gear and explain well why it is sometimes to come to Dublin in breaches, presenting, as I have said, an incongruous spectacle of sport in my drawing room on a background of impressionist pictures. I am unable to offer any opinion. I am unable to offer any opinion, is the last line of that rant that went for four hours. That's the po- That's the podcast. That's the episode. Bye.